Please turn in your Bibles to Mark, chapter 6. For our sermon today, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through verse 29. I'm going to read the passage and pray, jump right in the sermon. Hear now the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. And Herodias had a grudge, sorry, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe when he heard him. He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, They came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. May its truth be ever written on our hearts. Let us pray. Lord God, you have spoken and you reveal yourself to us. Lord, use the words I have prepared to guide our hearts to know you better, to love you more. Prepare us to be witnesses for Christ in the world we live in today and help us to love you more. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you haven't been following along, this is probably a pretty weird passage to come into. The beheading of John the Baptist is a lesson in Christian persecution. Now, I want to say up front, I don't think everyone's out to get us as Christians. I don't really think it's us versus them kind of world. I don't think we face this kind of persecution here in the United States very often, if ever. And I normally try to avoid talking about politics. But I think this passage forces us to consider the society we live in and the difficulties Christians face specifically for holding to Jesus's moral teachings. You see, this passage is kind of uniquely placed. 
Right before this, at the very end of the passage we looked at last week, Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, two by two, into the villages around them to spread the message of Jesus Christ. And if you look at the very next verse after this passage, in verse 30, which we'll get to next week, it says the 12 disciples returned to Jesus and told, after telling people about Jesus, and they told him all the amazing things they had done. You see, in between the disciples being sent out and the disciples returning, while they're out doing ministry, Mark squeezes in this story about the death of John the Baptist. As if to tell us, as we go out and tell people about Jesus, we will face the same kind of trials and persecution. It's a little hard to know exactly why Mark includes this here. At first glimpse, this story doesn't really fit with everything happening around it. But I think it's actually connected to what we talked about last week. Because last week we talked about how Jesus was rejected, and if we follow Jesus, we too will likely be rejected. And this story adds another layer to that picture for us. You see, the rejection we saw happen to Jesus last week was a rejection in his hometown. It was his local community, his friends, his family, the people he grew up with, his neighbors. But in this passage, we get a glimpse at another type of rejection that Jesus' followers might face. In this passage, we see social opposition. In fact, we see Christian persecution. As if to show us that while the disciples go out to proclaim the good news about Jesus, they too will face this kind of persecution from the society at large. Society is against Jesus' morality. And if people are going to hold to Jesus' moral teachings, they will be opposed by the society and the world we live in. In this passage, we see the high society elites of the day facing Jesus' standards. Herod is the king. There's a political quality to this story where we see that governments may not accept Christian teachings and may even turn against Christians. On top of Herod is his so-called wife, Herodias, and the people of his party, the nobles, the commanders, the leading men of Galilee, these are the cultural elites of his day. This would be the first century equivalent of Washington politicians and Wall Street execs, NPR hosts and talk show hosts. These are the first century equivalent of our social and cultural elites. John faces rejection and persecution for the Jesus message amongst these social elites. So in this passage, I think we get a glimpse at how social elites often respond to the Jesus message. And we see that they lead society against Jesus's morality. And if we hold to Jesus's message and his moral teachings, we'll hold society against us. And there's two things we really need to see here for all this to make sense. We need to see the connection between John's teachings and Jesus. And then we need to see how these high society people respond to Jesus' teachings. 
and what that teaches us about the culture and the society we live in today. So first you see in verse 14, somehow the apostle's message, this message about Jesus Christ, makes its way to Herod. King Herod hears about Jesus. And according to verse 14 and 15, the people around Herod have all different ideas about who this Jesus is. Now, that's really what Mark is all about. The whole gospel is wrapped up in these couple of verses. Because Mark is asking, who is Jesus? The first question that people ask when they encounter the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is who is this Jesus anyway? Though we may be often driven to talk about morality, and that's mostly what we're going to talk about today, the ultimate question is, who do you say Jesus is? Because if you don't think Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you're probably not going to hold to Jesus' moral teachings. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't confront the morality of people. You see, some of the people here say he's Elijah, and some say he's a great prophet, and others think he is John the Baptist, none of which are correct. But when Herod hears about Jesus, he thinks about John the Baptist, who he beheaded. Now, if you've been reading through the book of Mark up to this point, you did not know that John was dead. So the rest of this story about John's beheading is a flashback to the death of John. And we see how the society elites oppose John's message, just like the society around us, will be against Jesus' morality. And we see this because for some reason, Herod heard this message about Jesus. He heard about Jesus, and he thought about John. Now, this text doesn't tell us a lot about John the Baptist and what he did, but one of the things it does say is what he said to Herod. Verse 18, For John was saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is a moral claim. When John says it's not lawful, what law is he talking about? He's talking to the king of Judah who's over the laws of the land. So he's probably not talking about Judean law because the king is over them. He's probably not talking about Roman law, because this kind of thing was all too common in Roman culture, yet alone the house of Caesar. So what law is this against? The law of God. You see, there's a higher law, a moral law, a natural law that goes above our kings and our leaders. And that's the law of God. And think about what he's saying here. Herod and Philip in this passage are brothers. Really, they're half-brothers. They're both children of Herod the Great, who was the king of Judah at the time of Jesus' birth, but they have different mothers. But Herod kind of steals the wife of Philip to be his own wife. In and of itself, this is immoral enough, but the story is actually a little weirder. Because her name is Herodias, 
which is a feminine version of Herod, likely meaning she is from the house of Herod, which likely means she's a daughter of Herod the Great, the father of both Herod and Philip, which means, if this is true, Herod took his sister to be his wife, who was prior the wife of someone who is a brother to both of them. Like, this is gross, and this is immorality on display. This should show us just how immoral our social elites often end up being. For in this day, this was common, and we see all sorts of things today. But when John calls out Herod's marriage, he is calling out Herod for his sinful and immoral behavior. And the important thing to see is that when Herod hears about Jesus, he thinks about John calling out immorality. There's something about the Jesus message that is connected to calling out immorality. There's something about talking about Jesus that forces us to address moral issues. And I think this goes back to what we talked about last week. Part of the natural offense of the gospel to people in the world is the call to repentance, to turn away from sin. The good news about Jesus involves proclaiming that all people, even all of us in this room, myself included, need to turn away from sin to turn to Jesus. So proclaiming the Jesus message includes Jesus' moral teaching. Proclaiming the Jesus message includes proclaiming Jesus' moral teaching. So we find that all too often, society is against Jesus' moral teachings. Now, there's a lesson here for Christians to heed real quick, and this is a place where I could easily get in a little bit of trouble, because I don't normally want to talk about politics, but Herod is a king. This is a political state. Now, the lesson here is that we may, in fact, we have the responsibility and the duty to call out our political officials and our leaders for immoral behavior. Perhaps the biggest blight on conservative Christians affiliated with the Republican Party is Donald Trump. And before Trump, it was Nixon and Watergate. And it's not just conservatives, it's Democrats and progressive Christians too. They have Bill Clinton and JFK, who was certainly a womanizer. This is a both-side issue. And I'm not saying any of these men were bad presidents. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm saying as a Christian, it is right to call out the immorality of these people. People can be good leaders and still have immoral failures. And that doesn't mean they're not qualified to be president or senator or whatever. All the kings in the Old Testament, David included, did horrible things, and yet God still put them in the position of kings. But even though God put them in the position of kings, God sent prophets to call them out for their immorality. Christians have a duty and a responsibility to call out our political officials for their immoral behavior in their personal life. Their personal, private 
moral failings are to be called out in the public stage. Let me say this too, this isn't just about politics and our government leaders. Business leaders who do immoral things should be called out, and pastors who do immoral things should most certainly be called out. Almost all the qualifications for a pastor in 1 Timothy and in Titus are moral behaviors. Kings might be able to keep being kings if they do immoral things, but pastors should be removed from ministry because they become disqualified. Pastors, too, are not above reproach. And if there is any pastor in unrepentant sin, that should be called out, addressed, and they should likely be removed from the ministry. Now, there's something in all this that shows us that speaking about immorality is uniquely tied to the Jesus message. And if we're going to hold to the Jesus message, not just in church and in our homes, that means talking about immorality and calling out immorality in the public square. Society will always be against Jesus's moral teachings. And if we hold to Jesus and his teachings, society might also be against us. So now that we see that John's teaching here is a moral teaching, and Herod connects the good news about Jesus to morality, that means the good news about Jesus includes teachings about morality. And then we see how the cultural elites and the people of the day respond to this kind of teaching. And there's kind of three big pictures here. Three different ways people respond to Jesus's moral teaching. There are people like Herod, who according to verse 20, feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. It goes on to say, and he heard him and he was greatly perplexed. Some people are like Herod. They are perplexed, maybe even a little fearful at Jesus's moral teachings. They're perplexed because they don't completely understand it. It's not something they're used to, but they're fearful that it might actually be true. And if it's true, that means they need to stop doing what they're doing. And then there's some people who are much more like Herodias in this story. In verse 19, it shows us that she heard Jesus' moral teachings from John, and she had a grudge and wants to kill him. There are people who hear about Jesus' moral teachings, and they take it as such an affront, such an assault to themselves, that they reject Christ, they hold a grudge, and they might even try to do away with you, not because of any offense of you, but because they don't like the teaching, it calls them out. But most people I find are altogether different. They're neither like Herod or Herodias. They're like the guest. The cultural elite in verse 21, the nobles, the commanders, the leading men of Galilee, are neither perplexed nor do they have a grudge to bear. They're not even really thinking about it. They just go with the flow. No one speaks up when Herod calls for John to be beheaded. They're just there. They go with it. The problem with not really thinking about Jesus's moral teachings is you become complicit. The problem with not really 
conceiving and fearing the moral teachings of Jesus is when society and the leaders of society try to change morality from what the Bible teaches, from what Jesus has instructed, you just go with the flow and you become complicit in the plot against Jesus and his teachings. And so this leads to cultural downfall because most people just don't speak up at all. Not to be offensive, but this is pretty much what happened in Germany. The issue wasn't Hitler's rise to power as much as everyone else who just let it happen. By nature of our sin, the culture is always against Jesus's morality. Most people aren't really going to do anything to challenge Christian values and biblical teachings and the basic understandings that we hold to from the Bible. But their lack of concern for them allows those who do try to destroy basic moral values to access the culture and the society. And so the society ends up being against Jesus's morality. Like the nobles, the commanders, and the leading men of Galilee in our text, many just sit around while the Herodiases of the world plot to destroy those who hold to Jesus's morality. You see, we have this weird story here of Herodias's daughter dancing for Herod. Time doesn't allow me to go into a ton of detail here, but I will say if you get the chance this week, go back and read this passage and then read the book of Esther. This is kind of a horrible, disgusting twist on the Esther narrative. It's kind of the opposite thing happening in the same way. But the thing I want us to see today is how horrible and disgusting this really is, because our English Bibles kind of sanitize this and clean it up a bit. The phrase here about dancing literally says she danced to please him. And those words together in Greek literature often describe just what you would think. This is a fairly central, maybe even erotic dance. Not to be vulgar, but think about this. Herodias is having her young daughter dance to please Herod, her stepdad, who also happens to be her uncle. This is pretty disgusting. To the original readers, this likely would have been amongst the ultimate pictures of immorality in the public sphere. Like, this is gross. But the people in this scene have kind of just gotten used to it. This is just what happens when you go to a Herod party. This is just what happens when you go to an island. This is just what happens when you hang out with these people. They've gotten used to it, and so they don't confront the moral issues. And despite his reservation, Herod agrees to have John beheaded because he doesn't want to offend the people around him. Even though he's sorry about it, he knows he made an oath in front of these people and he is a people pleaser. Because society is against Jesus' morality, John is about to die. Often the society of this world will always be against Jesus' teachings. And certain people amongst the social elite will try to fight against them. And they might even persecute and oppress those who proclaim the Jesus message. 
and they do it like Herodias so that they can feel better about themselves. But you might be tempted to think this kind of thing doesn't really happen anymore, like we've moved past this in 2,000 years. And let me just point out, in 2019 and 2020, between those two years, over 100 Christian leaders were beheaded in Nigeria. In 2015, a journalist was beheaded on a live stream to Western media while being asked to recant Christianity and refusing. In 2013, missionaries were beheaded in the Solomon Islands. I point this out simply to say the world at large has not moved past this kind of persecution and oppression. It's not common here in the West, but it takes a certain amount of Western elitism, American arrogance, to say that this stuff doesn't happen at all. Our Christian brothers and sisters around the world face this kind of persecution and worse every day. But it's true, you probably won't face this kind of persecution in your life. No one's going to kill you for the gospel here in Baxter, Iowa. But that doesn't mean you won't face any persecution at all. The days are changing, history is changing, and Christians throughout history have always stood at odds with the culture at large. I know many Christians who have lost licensing as psychologists and teachers, who have lost jobs, who have lost careers, because they refuse to change their views to fit whatever is being purported now. Because they hold to basic biblical morality, they are losing jobs and ways of life. And though that might not be common yet, I fear it's going to become more common in the decades ahead. And before you think that this is just a rant, and that this has nothing to do with the passage, let me remind you one last time that John was not in trouble for talking about Jesus. He was in trouble for calling out immorality. Part of the gospel is a call to repentance, to tell people to turn from their sin and turn back to Jesus. If you believe the gospel message is true, then you have to, a responsibility to stand for the truth. So the question becomes, would you die for what you believe to be true? Would you die for what you believe about Jesus? Because if you're not willing to die for it, you probably won't actually live for it. If you're not willing to die for this, to be beheaded, then you'll probably never stand up for it in the public sphere. Because the ultimate never comes down to the minor. Let me close with this thought. If you remember back to the beginning of Mark or our sermon series on the birth of John the Baptist, you will remember that the whole reason John the Baptist was sent into the world by God was to prepare the way of the Lord. And here we have the death of John the Baptist, kind of right at the very middle of Mark. There's a couple more chapters till we actually hit the middle, but this is like the middle point in Mark. And John's dead. His ministry is done. The way of the Lord has been prepared. He's been preparing people for Jesus, and now the disciples are being sent out to tell people about Jesus. 
The way of the Lord has been prepared, and the entire rest of Mark is just making clear over and over and over again that Jesus is the Lord that John came to prepare the way for. And part of John's way of preparing the way for the Lord was calling out immorality to make a people ready for Jesus. And the societies then and societies today will always be opposed to Jesus' moral teachings. And so as we go out to prepare the way of the Lord in our own community, we need to be prepared to face this kind of rejection and oppression. Even though it may never come, are you willing to die for what you believe? Because if not, you'll probably never live for it. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the witness and testimony of John the Baptist. And we pray may we be brave enough that if necessary, we follow in his footsteps. May we be people who love Jesus so much and love his message that we're willing to call people out for immorality in order to call them to Jesus who brings forgiveness and love and grace and new life over all things. We pray this for our good and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.